Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This revelation is going to be received at the end of 1832, December 27th and 28th, and then also on a third day, January 3rd. So this takes place over the course of about three days in the company of about nine individuals. Essentially, we've got Joseph and Sidney and some of the other leaders of the church in a three-day conference. Joseph Smith has just turned 27. He's 27 years old, and he's about to show us the God of this universe in a way that no one else has ever shown. To me, one of the greatest evidences that Joseph Smith was a prophet is there is no way you could come up with Section 88 on your own. This is as grandiose as it comes. Yeah. Um, In the beginning of Section 88, we read this verse— Verse 3, I send upon you another comforter, even upon you, my friends, that it may abide in your hearts, even the Holy Spirit of promise, which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as is recorded in the testimony of John. So go to John 16, and this is my translation. Uh, essentially, it reads, but I tell all of you the truth. It brings you all together, sumfere. This is this bringing together in fellowship. This is what the King James says, where it says, it is expedient for you that I go away. But the word used here, and an expedient can be used or fitting, but it's this binding together, this sumfere, this binding together in fellowship, that in his departing, he says, if I do not depart, the comforter, the paraclete, will not come unto you. But if I leave, I will send him to you. And that word parakletos is a word that can mean lots of things. A paraclete is an advocate. It's a helper or a companion or a comforting counselor. And so in one context, Jesus is this intimate comforting counselor that stands with you and that defends you. He's your advocate. Whereas the adversary is the diabolos, or the the one who throws spears through you. That's where we get the word, uh, well, dia means through, and balos or bolos is like to throw. That's where we get the word ball. Satan is is throwing things at you. He's attacking you. He's the, the accuser. Well, the Savior is your defender. And so he's going to send you this paraclete or this comforter. And in this context... I think Joseph Smith is expanding our understanding of John. He's giving us stages of what it means to receive a comforter. And and Joseph's going to talk about the first and the second comforter. The first comforter is the Holy Ghost or the manifestation of the Spirit that the gospel's true. The second comforter is receiving the promise that you're true. Now, in some contexts, it's the second comforter is the risen Lord himself visiting you, receiving a guarantee of exaltation from the Savior, that he will come to you, manifest himself to you, and tell you that you can come into his presence. And I see that being encapsulated in these verses, because if you look in verse 4, this comforter is the promise which I give you of eternal life. In essence, there's the testimony 
that you receive by the Spirit that the gospel is true, that Jesus is the Christ. And that's good. But another comforter is the knowledge you receive by the Spirit that you're true, that the Lord has told you, no, you are true. And that's what we're seeking. And so I like that this section begins with that idea, that the Lord wants to send us that helper. The way I see it is that the Savior stands with me. That is an image of who Jesus is, our defender, our comforter, our advocate. I love it. So the way I would describe section 88, I want you to picture a mosaic of Jesus, meaning it's a picture of Christ, recognizable as Christ, made up of thousands of little pictures of Christ. We are going to see the most grandiose vision of the Redeemer by looking at little teeny pictures of him. And what I've done in my scriptures is every time we take a different picture of the Savior, I use a different color, and I I go through the rainbow three times in section 88. That's how many little pictures of Jesus we've got. From Jesus is the light and the power of everything in this universe to Jesus, the resurrection, the Jesus of the second coming, what he does with all of his different kingdoms. And all of this culminates at the very end of 88 with the command to build a temple. In section 88, verse 119, is what we consider the official invitation from God in this dispensation to build a temple. Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house. And then he goes on and describes the house. And so the beauty of this is Jesus is going to simply say, let me show you who I am in all his grandiose glory. And then it's going to end with the invitation to come into his house and partner with him, to join with him in full fellowship and grab his hand in a grip that cannot be broken. Come into the temple and meet me there. And so first, let's take a look at all of these incredible images of the Savior There's a lot here, and we certainly can't cover it all in this podcast, but we'll do our best to paint as many of these little pictures of the Savior as we can. So he begins by saying he's so pleased that we've come together, and when we come together, he sends the Comforter, he sends the Holy Spirit of promise. This Comforter is the promise which I give you of eternal life. So he begins kind of with the invitation into the temple, and he ends with that invitation into the temple. I give you this comforter, which is the promise I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom, which glory is that of the church of the firstborn, even Jesus. So there's our introduction to this glorious man, Jesus, the Son of God. And then we get our first picture, and that is Jesus is light. Jesus is power. Now, I'm going to actually jump to verse 13 and put all these words as synonyms. He's going to use them interchangeably in the scriptures, and he puts them all in one verse. Jesus is light. Light is life and law and power. Jesus is the light that gives everyone life. He is the law that governs everything, and he is the power of God. It emanates from God, 
and he is light, life, law, and power. And the reason for that, if you know how light is generated, going from a high state of energy to a low state of energy and giving off energy in the form of a photon, verse 6, he ascended up on high and descended below all things. Do you see the similarity between that and light? Jesus ascended up on high. He has been higher than any human being ever achieved. He has been lower than any human being ever achieved. In that he comprehends all things. That he might be in all and through all things the light of truth. Because of his atoning sacrifice— He has become light, and that light shineth. It's the light of Christ. Verse 7, it powers the sun. Jesus is the power of the S-U-N. Jesus is in the sun and the power whereof it was made. He goes on to talk about um, all of these things are kept in their orbit by law, which comes from light. And then he just says, verse 8, he's in the moon. He's the power of the moon. He's in the stars. He is the power whereof they were made. He keeps the stars lit. He is in the earth. He is the power of the earth. We don't need to worry about this earth. It will fulfill his purposes. Now, the earth is going to take on a whole new meaning in section 88. He's going to talk a great deal about the earth. We'll see that Jesus is in the earth and the light of the earth. And then verse 11, the light which signeth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understanding. So he's in the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, and he is the very being that gives us light and gives us life and law and power. I think that really helps us as Latter-day Saints to encapsulate some of the early Christian debates over who Jesus was. How can Jesus be a God? How can he be everywhere and also be embodied? And I think we get a window open into some of these ideas in these early verses in section 88, because as he's in the light of the sun and the moon and the stars, verse 7, 8, and 9, he's also in us, verse 11. And then verse 12, he fills the immensity of space. And then verse 13, he is the light which is in all things. He is the light and the life of the world. So he can be embodied, but the light that proceeds from him is in and through all things. And this is what Brigham Young said. He said, God is the source, the fountain of all intelligence, no matter who possesses it, whether man upon the earth, the spirits in the spirit world, the angels that dwell in the eternities of the gods, or the most inferior intelligence among the devils in hell. All have derived what intelligence, light, power, and existence they have from God, from the same source from which we have received ours. And so I think that's an invitation to me to get that light in me. And if I am wallowing in darkness, then I need to go to the source, the source of light and beg for that help. Get it because it's there. Other apostles in the 19th century talked about the idea that even the plants that grow, that get their light, that their life and their light is coming from this source. So that's another window into who Jesus is. Yeah, 
I was on my mission when science first cloned a sheep, and that really bothered my mom. You know, we're tampering with life. How can we clone a sheep? We're meddling in life. And so my mom wrote to me in the mission and just told me how frustrated she was about the fact that science had cloned a sheep. And I said, Mom, let me tell you how to clone a sheep. I'm going to, I'm a biology major. I had taken enough biology. I said, let me teach you how you clone a sheep. You start with a living cell, a fertilized egg. And then you take the sheep and you pull out the sheep's DNA. And then you put that sheep's DNA in that living cell, that fertilized egg. And with that copy of DNA, it becomes an exact copy of the other sheep. You've cloned a sheep. And I said, Mom, but notice the starting point. The one thing science cannot do is create life. We have to borrow life. We can put DNA inside of a fertilized cell, but what we can't do is give life to a cell. What makes it alive and gives it life is God. I sat in a developmental biology class as as one of the world's foremost experts who came to our university and lectured. And the question on the table is, how does the daughter cell, how do the daughter cells know how to differentiate? If I'm a cell with one copy of DNA that starts splitting and changing, it differentiates so that my eye becomes my eye and my toe becomes my toe, how does my eye know how to become my eye and my toe know how to become my toe? Well, the answer is they read the DNA in different places. But they were once a single cell with the same copy of DNA. So how do two daughter cells who have the exact same copy of DNA know how to differentiate and become something else? And I, you know, I raised my hand and I asked that of this world's expert. What gives the daughter cells the signal on how to read the DNA in a different place than the other cell? And this world's expert simply said, we don't know. They have the same copy of DNA. And it was poured into my soul the witness that God is light and life and law and power. And I love those four words as synonyms for God. Now, the next pitch, starting in chapter, in verse 14, we shift into a new picture frame. And the next one is Jesus the quickener. And we talk about resurrection and how Jesus is going to quicken or resurrect. And we define what we, what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has long believed, and the world has kind of hinted at, but here it is in Scripture, the spirit and the body are the soul of man. There it is defined in Scripture. Verse 15, the spirit and the body are the soul of man. Therefore, when the resurrection of the body occurs, it's the redemption of the soul. My soul gets quickened. It gets resurrected and quickened. Like the earth. So we're going to pause. We're going to tell the earth story. So end of verse 17, the poor and the meek are going to inherit the earth. Verse 18 It, meaning the earth must needs be sanctified from all unrighteousness, that it may be prepared for the celestial glory. This earth upon which we stand will become the celestial kingdom for those of us who dwell in the celestial kingdom on this earth. 
I really like these verses because it talks about the purpose of the earth, why it was made. Verse 20, for this intent was it made and created, and for this intent are they sanctified. But the it in verse 19, the it in verse 18 is the earth. And I think we live in a world today where people don't see the earth for its purpose. And there's a strong contingent of individuals that say things like, if you have children, you're being selfish. I think in this section, once again, the Lord is just saying, no, this is the purpose of why I made the earth. And I know we've talked about this before, but it's good to see that, you know, here it is reiterated again in scripture. And I love in verse 25, look at the earth as an individual. The earth abideth the law of a celestial kingdom, for it fulfilleth the measure of its creation and transgresseth not the law. The earth obeys a celestial law. Notwithstanding it be sanctified, it will die. So verse 26, the earth is going to die. It is a temporal earth right now. It is going to die. It shall be quickened again and shall abide the power by which it is quickened and the righteous shall inherit. So the earth is kind of like an entity. I love what the Savior is doing is this is a picture within a picture within a picture, because what he's saying is, I have a purpose for the earth, and that the earth is a living organism which is going to die. It was baptized. It will receive the baptism of fire, just like every human does, and then it's going to be resurrected into a celestial state. God has a plan even for the earth's salvation, which would include everything on it. Section 76 talked about that the God we worship has a plan for bugs and animals and fish. He cares about the salvation of not just his children, but for the earth itself. And the purpose of the earth is to become a celestial planet in which we can dwell. And then going back to verses 20, going back to 21, 22, 23, 24, let's talk about that quickening. You are quickened by the law you live. So notice he says in verse 22, if you are able to live the celestial law, you will be quickened by a celestial glory. 23 says, if you live the terrestrial law, you'll be quickened by the terrestrial glory. If you live a telestial law, you'll be quickened by the telestial glory. And then if you can't live a telestial law, you'll be quickened, but you can't, you won't dwell in any glory. So he keeps talking about, we're going to be resurrected by the power of the law that we live. So if you live a celestial law, going back to Jesus in the four words, he is life and light and law and power. If you live a celestial law, verse 29, you will be quickened by a celestial glory. If you lived a terrestrial law, you'll be quickened by a terrestrial glory. The terrestrial glory will claim you and resurrect you as a terrestrial body with a terrestrial glory, because that's the law you chose to obey. That's the law you wanted to obey. It would not be fair to resurrect a terrestrial person as a celestial person because they don't want to live that law. It's also a merciful thing, meaning that this is where 
these individuals want to be. I mean, you're going to be where you will enjoy that experience. Yeah, if you and don't so, want to live the celestial law, going to the celestial kingdom would be a punishment. It's kind of merciful, in essence, that, that you receive that which you want to receive. It kind of reminds me of that verse in Alma 29 where the Lord says, He allotteth unto men according to their desires, according to their wills. Yep. Everyone gets what they want. Everyone gets the glory and the power of the law they want to obey. Now, verse 32, there will be some who came to earth, got a body, but don't live a telestial law. And we talked about that in section 76. You go to the telestial kingdom for doing something very good. The law of the telestial kingdom is that you accept Jesus as your Savior, as the atoner. Because look at verse 32, those who remain, meaning the sons of perdition, will be quickened. If you got a body, you will be resurrected. But they will go to their own place to enjoy that which they were willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. They didn't live even a telestial law. Therefore, they can't have a telestial glory. Verse 33 is what they rejected. For what doth it profit a man if, he, if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receive not the gift? Behold, he receives not in that which is given, nor in the giver of the gift. So clearly, any kingdom of glory is to receive the gift from the giver. So the sons of perdition go to their own place because they will not live even a telestial law. I love the wording here. If you'll notice in verse 22, if you were able to live a celestial law, meanings you maybe there were times you didn't actually be fully called upon to live it, but you have to be able to live a celestial law, will be quickened by a celestial glory. Now we pick up another picture of Jesus, so a new frame, and that is Jesus is law, and law gives power and light everywhere in the universe. Verse 34, he says, that which is governed by law is preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. So I'm not just a servant of the celestial law. If I serve the celestial law, the celestial law serves me. By choosing to obey a celestial law, I am choosing to be preserved and perfected and sanctified by that same law. I will receive the celestial glory because I chose to live a celestial law. And same is true with terrestrial and telestial. Now, if you break the law, so again, I think this is a reference to the sons of perdition. That which breaketh a law and abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself. Now, there's a great description of Satan and his followers. They seek to become a law unto themselves. And willeth to abide in sin, and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law. If you don't live even a telestial law, you can't be sanctified by a telestial law. Neither by mercy, justice, or judgment. Therefore they remain filthy, notice this key word, still, even after the resurrection, even after Jesus has offered all of his salvation, there are those who remain filthy still. 
but it all comes down to, do you obey law? So we are sanctified by the law we obey. Verse 36, all kingdoms have a law given. There isn't a single space on this in this universe that God claims as his space that doesn't have a law given. Verse 38, unto every kingdom is given a law, and unto every law there are certain bounds and also conditions. All beings who abide not in these conditions are not justified. Therefore, they have to go, go back to verse 32, they have to go to their own place, a place not justified by law. So you live God's law or you cannot be redeemed by God's law. I choose to live a celestial law. I want to give myself to a celestial law and do the things that the celestial law requires. Therefore, the law sanctifies me. And ultimately, the law will quicken me. Sometimes our detractors say things like, well, you think you can earn salvation. And I really love verse 33 that draws that line that says, no, we're receiving him. It's a gift. It's even uses that term gift in verse 33. And I, I like to liken this in a simple way to like a scholarship. If you earn this full ride scholarship because you qualified for it, I certainly didn't earn the money that paid for the scholarship, but I lived a certain condition and I qualified for this. And so I like that idea that the law sanctifies, especially when we use the term law to represent Jesus. As a synonym for light right. and Christ. And so what's, an, what's interesting is if you look at verses 36 through 39 and replace law with Christ, all kingdoms have Christ given. There isn't a kingdom that isn't governed by Christ. Now, if you choose not to be governed by Christ, you can't dwell in a kingdom. You see the synonym? Light, law, power, glory, life are all synonyms here. And then I love verse 40 because, you know, I'm trying to be celestial, but I fall short. But man, I desire, I want to be celestial. And I love verse 40 because if my heart is celestial, it will cleave to everything that's celestial. If my heart is really terrestrial, it will cleave to things that are terrestrial, like, likes, like. So he says, intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. Wisdom receiveth wisdom. Truth embraceth truth. Virtue loveth virtue. Light cleaveth unto light. Mercy hath compassion on mercy, claimeth her own. Justice continues its course, claimeth its own. And then notice all of these go into a single individual. Judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne and governeth. He comprehends all things. If my heart is of a celestial nature, it will cleave unto the things of Christ that are celestial. I will love celestial things, and I will naturally get there. Yes, I fall short time and time again, but my heart drives me towards celestial things. Now, verse 42 through 45, we pick up another picture frame, and we get to see how everything else obeys Christ. So, verse 42, he says, He, meaning God, hath given a law unto all things by which they move in their times and in their seasons. And then I love verse 43, their courses are fixed. It rains when, where he tells it to rain. 
There are floods where he tells it to flood. There are famines where he tells it to have a famine. Their courses are fixed. They obey him. Verse 44, they give light to each other in their times and in their seasons. Light cleaves to light. Verse 45, the earth rolls upon her wings and the sun giveth light, giveth his light by day and the moon by night. Everyone obeys the law inside them. Every mountain, every sun, every star obeys the law within them. And there's an example to the sons of God. Now, this is why in the Book of Mormon, Mormon got frustrated in Helaman and points out, this is why we are less than the dust of the earth, because everything else obeys God's law. But man often seeks to be a law unto himself. Yeah. Excellent. Now, verse 45 is a very poetic verse describing God's creations. And I don't see this phrase anywhere in the Bible where we read in verse 45, the earth rolls upon her wings and the sun giveth his light. So we have this gendered sun in the masculine, the earth in the feminine, and then the moon back in the feminine by day and the moon gives her light by night and the stars give their light as they roll upon their wings and their glory in the midst of the power of God. It's just such a poetic verse on creation. And this idea of the earth rolling upon her wings, to me, I see that God is holding the earth in his hand or that these wings represent his covering. And that word for wings is a fun word to play with. A great verse to read with this comes from Exodus 19, where the Lord speaking to Moses says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on the wings of eagles and brought you unto myself. And so that word in the Hebrew, kinfei, is, it's a derivation of, of the word kanaf, which is the word for wing. It expresses the idea of a wing, but it means a lot of other things. That word can be a border or a corner or a shirt or a sheet or an overspreading or a skirt. And so this word is used to describe the wings of the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant, if you go to 1 Kings 8, but it's really all over the place in the Old Testament. I'm just reading 1 Kings 8, 6, where it says, The priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to his place into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. And so it's this idea that God's center, his most holy place, is right there under those wings. And so that word can represent a covering or an overspreading or even a skirt or a shirt or a border, that word is connected with the temple, with the ark, with the holy of holies, and with creation. We see this when we go to Ruth. In Ruth chapter 3, now if you remember, she's going to be the matriarch of this house of David. Through her loins is going to come David's seed and Jesus. And she's an outsider. She's from Moab. And the author of Ruth is making sure that we see this outsider put into an inside position as a holy matriarch. And so she's going to propose marriage to Boaz. And so if you go to the third chapter of Ruth, verse nine, it reads as follows. And he, meaning Boaz, said to her, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid, 
Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Ruth is asking Boaz that he cover her with his kanaf. Um, the word is going to be translated as skirt, but it's the same word that we read in the 19th chapter of Exodus or that we read in 1 Kings 8. But the idea is that his skirt or his wings are covering her. That word is connected with the temple, with the ark, with the holy of holies, and with creation. Because you see, that proposal of marriage that she's making to Boaz is on the threshing floor. And the threshing floor is going to be the place where David is going to place the ark. That is going to be the Eben Shatia or the sacred stone where the Holy of Holies will rest. That's tied in the Helaman 5 where it says, build your life upon the rock, which is Christ. That rock is the threshing floor. And so this idea of the earth rolling upon her wings, to me, I see that God is holding the earth in his hand or that these wings represent his covering. I certainly don't take it literal that the earth is rolling or that it has wings per se, but I use that word, that that word kanaf that's so prevalent in the Old Testament to associate it with creation and covenant and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the nexus of God's very power. It's such a powerful word. I love it. Now, we learn from Moses that there are worlds without number. He has uncountable worlds, all with inhabitants on them. So the next picture frame we're going to pick up, and it's the picture frame of, is he too big for me? Is he too busy to pay attention to me? Does he have too many worlds to worry about, to care about me? So he says in verse 46, unto what shall I liken these kingdoms? Which is a fun question, but what I think he's really doing is showing us him, not the kingdoms. He's showing us him through this parable of the kingdoms. And then verse, I love verse 47, the biologist in me screams out DNC 8847 because any man who hath seen any or the least of these hath seen God moving in his majesty. If you go up into the universe, you see God moving in his majesty. But if you go down into the cell, you see God moving in his majesty. For me, the study of biology was the study of God in his majesty. So I love that little side note he throws in there. You know, Bryce, my wife and I just went and saw Les Miserables, and there's that line at the end where they say, if you've loved another human being, you've seen the face of God. And the spirit was just so strong in that musical as as they were portraying this. And I think that's really what verse 47 is talking about. It's how he's in everything. And even somebody that you would think, oh, I'm not going to talk to that person, maybe a beggar, or maybe somebody that you just think, oh, this person has nothing to offer. I think verse 47 is saying, no, they have that light in them. We bury it sometimes with our choices or maybe certain things we do to bury that light, but it's in there. And I just, I love that. And it's all over the place in this section, starting in verse 47, all the way down to verse 58, you know, visiting all these people as I see the Lord being patient, working with the least among us saying, hey, maybe you're not going to get their immortality. Maybe you're not going to get to where I want you to be, 
but he just keeps working with us. And I know that that's not doctrine, but that's kind of my view of that is this God who's, because if he really is our father, would I ever give up on my son? Yeah. And what we're going to see is when I'm with you, you get my full attention. I am not a distracted God by anything else that's going on in my universe. So let's see the parable. Starting in verse 51, watch God with his kingdoms. And then apply this. This is macro. Apply it micro. We're going to go up into the universe and see God with his various kingdoms, but come down into the micro and see God with the individual. So verse 51. I will, liken to, I will liken these kingdoms unto a man having a field, and he sent forth his servants into the field to dig in the field. And he said to the first, go, labor in the field, and in the first hour I will come unto you, and you will behold the joy of my countenance. And he said the same thing to the second, all the way to the twelfth. Verse 56, the Lord of the vineyard went unto the first in the first hour and tarried with him all that hour. One of my favorite phrases, he tarried with him all that hour and was made glad with the light of the countenance of the Lord. I get my turn with God. Now take that out of time. He's not just saying you get five minutes with him and then he's going to go to everyone else. And when I'm not with you, When I'm with them, I'm not with you. But what he's saying is, I have his undivided attention. And then he withdrew from the first, that he might visit the second and the third, all the way to the twelfth. And then he goes again. Verse 60, every man in his own order until the hour was finished. You see the emphasis here? Until the hour was finished. Verse 61, unto this parable I will liken all my kingdoms and the inhabitants thereof. Every kingdom in its hour and in its time. So what has Jesus been doing to all the worlds he created? He's been visiting them. And they get his undivided attention. Now, the one thing that the natural man in us is worrying about as we read this is, do I lose his attention when he's with the next servant? And the answer is no. I am alone with God as if I were the only person he ever created. I don't lose his attention when he spends the second hour with the second servant. That's the God we worship. He has every hair of your head numbered. He knows exactly the ache in your heart. He knows what you love. He knows what you fear. He knows everything about you because you have his undivided attention. And that's the God we worship. He is never too big for each one of us. Therefore, now we shift. Now we've seen him in his glory. We've seen him with his worlds. Now, for the next several verses, we focus on him in my life. So we've seen Jesus in the sun, the moon, the stars. We've seen him all throughout the universe. We've seen the majesty of his greatness. Now watch at the uniqueness of his one-on-oneness. He says in verse 62, draw near unto me and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently and you will find me. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. 
The same God who visits each one in their hour is begging us to draw near unto him, and then he will draw near unto us. Verse 64, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, if it's expedient for you to have, I'll give it to you. If it's not expedient for you to have and you keep asking for it, I'll give it to you because you asked, but it's going to destroy you. I'm going to give you what you ask. So ask for the right things. I think a classic example of that is where they keep asking for the manuscript over and over again. And the Lord's like, don't, that's not a good choice. And they keep asking and the Lord's like, well, okay. In other words, we're back to Alma 29. He granteth unto men according to their wills. So we've got to be careful. There's that beautiful verse in Jacob chapter 4 speaking about the Jews. Jacob 4.14, I delivered many things unto them which they couldn't understand because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it. And now they're going to stumble because of it. And so I will answer your prayers. It goes back to, if you want the telestial kingdom, I'll give you the telestial kingdom. And all of the results of those desires will come. You get whatever you want. So verse 67 and 68 is his plea that what we want is the fullness of his glory. Verse 67, if your eye be single to my glory, if what you desire is the fullness of God in your life, if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light and there shall be no darkness in you. Let our eyes be single to his celestial glory. Verse 68, sanctify yourselves that your minds become single to God. And the days will come that you will see him, for he will unveil his face to you, but it'll be according to his time, in his way, according to his will. Now, verse 69, he says, remember the great and last promise which I have made unto you. What is God's great and last promise? Now, the danger is verse 69, our idle thoughts, our excess of laughter, our letting too much of the world in is going to cause us to forget the great and last promise. So what is the great and last promise that God has made? Well, he answers that question in the next few verses, starting in verse 74. I give unto you who are the first laborers in this last kingdom. Now, I don't know what we are. In 2022, what are we? Are we the fifth laborers? Are we the third laborers? I don't know. I kind of envy Joseph's day that they were the first laborers, but I love laboring in 2021. So whatever laborers we are, we are to assemble ourselves together, organize ourselves prepare ourselves, sanctify ourselves, purify our hearts, cleanse our hands and our feet, that I may make you clean. If you do all those things, then I will turn right around and do them for you. I will assemble I will organize, I will prepare, I will sanctify, I will purify and I will cleanse. Now, let me just jump ahead a little bit. We'll come back to this section, but I want you to see this thread. So now go to the end of section 88, which is the call to build a temple. For succinctness, let's narrow it down to three. Verse 119, 
organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house. So those are the same words he's been using. Now, establish in their day meant build. Establish in our day, I think, means establish a tradition of going. Establish that building as a major part of your life. I love how Howard W. Hunter worded it. Let the temple become the symbol of your membership. I think that's what he means by establish. But in Joseph Smith's day, establish meant built. So organize yourselves, prepare, and establish a house. And those of you who are preparing to enter the temple need to organize yourself. There's things that you need to prepare in order to come into the temple, and then you need to establish the temple in your life. Now, go to section 109, which is the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, and a similar pattern applies to every temple. Wherever you were endowed, the same promise applies. Section 109. Now, notice the great and last promise. He said, organize prepare and establish. He even repeats it in verse 8. Remember when I told you to organize, prepare, and establish? That's the command I gave you. And now that we've built the Kirtland Temple, you could say we've organized, prepared, and established. Therefore, listen to the prayer. Verse 15, that they may grow up in thee. We go to the temple to grow up and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost and be organized. If you organize your life so that you can go to the temple, you will be organized. The, The most significant thing that God did when I went to the temple is he organized me into an eternal family with the woman I love with all my soul. That union has been organized by God. It took some organizing on my part to make it into the temple. And I was organized. I was organized into an eternal family unit. And then back in verse 15, he says, you will be prepared to receive every needful thing. If you prepare to go to the temple, you will be prepared to obtain every needful thing. And then there's one more. Remember how we're supposed to establish? Verse 24, we ask the Holy Father to establish the people who worship and honorably hold a name, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. If you establish the temple, then God will establish you, and no weapon formed against you will prosper. Do you see the beauty of the temple? Everything we take to God, He turns around, magnifies it, and gives it back to us. If you cleanse your feet and your hands, he cleanses your feet and your hands. And he blesses you in abundance. That is the great and last promise he talks about in section 88. 
It is the promise of the temple. It is the promise of joining him in his house and receiving everything that he has to receive. So back to section 88, verse 75. So notice 74, that if you do all these things, I'm going to turn them right around and make you clean, that I may testify unto your Father and your God and my God that you are clean from the blood of this wicked generation, that I may fulfill this promise, this great and last promise which I have made unto you. The great and last promise is that he will stand before the Father And we will be organized, we will be established, we will be prepared to receive everything that the Father has for us. And it's just dripping with temple references here. Those of us who've been to the temple can see that. Now, I don't think Joseph in his day caught that as much as we can, but it's dripping with promises of temple covenants. The great and last promise that God gave is fulfilled in the temple. Therefore, what do we need to do? 77, 78, 79, teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. Teach each other. Teach ye diligently. So teaching leads to assembling and organizing and preparing and establishing. Teaching leads to action. So teach one another the doctrine of of the kingdom, and my grace shall attend you. And I love this list, that you may be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the law of the gospel, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand, of things both in heaven and in earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which were abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations, the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge of countries and of kingdoms. Mike is my great hero in that he just pours over lessons learned in the past so that we can be better today. We should be more perfectly instructed in the things of the past, the things that are, the things of history, the things of nations. Why? That we may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again to magnify the calling wherein I have called you and the mission with which I have commissioned you. That is a beautiful little picture of Jesus. The connection. We've seen Jesus in the cosmos. Now we've seen Jesus in our individual lives. Yeah. I think he's also encouraging them to seek learning. We read this in 88.118. The Lord says, Seek out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning even by study and also by faith. And I think secular learning has a place. I know there's a little bit of pushback. Sometimes people say things like, well, secular learning won't save you. But in the context of especially the end of this revelation where the Lord tells him to go talk to people and warn them, we have to be able to be conversant in their language. And so if you think about it, we send thousands of missionaries out and they get language training. Hopefully they have more in their head than just scriptures. They have the ability to communicate with people. And so in this revelation, I see the beginnings or the seeds of what's going to be called the school of the prophets. And you can go to the store right there in Kirtland 
to the Neil K. Whitney store, and there'll be missionaries there that will take you to the room where the School of the Prophets was, and it's a small room. I don't think they had any more than maybe 20, 25 people that went to the School of the Prophets. But in the School of the Prophets, Joseph Smith is preparing them for the temple, and he's encouraging them to learn. He Joseph wants to learn languages. He wants to continue to learn, I really do think, so that he can in a way, put context to some of the things that he's seeing. So when he picks up a little bit of Hebrew, he starts to see even more. And so I do, I'm a big fan of learning by study and also by faith. And I see them both work hand in hand. And that's part of this world that we live in. And that's why I love verse 79, where it talks about, we got to learn things under the earth and things that have been, we have to learn all this stuff to give context to What does the restoration even mean? And I think, to me, the more educated you get, the more you appreciate the position of the restoration. And I think we're more prepared to be of use to the Lord. And so I make that plug, but I also realize that secular learning doesn't save me. I mean, it's the Savior that saves. But in as much as we can get it, it'll be a blessing to us. And so I love that in verse 80 where he says, you get this, this knowledge, so that you may be prepared in all things when I send you out. I'm going to send you out, and you have to talk to people. And I want you to to put your best foot forward, to be your best self. And I love that learning is often connected to temple. Learning and temple are often referenced in the same verses. So notice in 88, 118 says, diligently teach one another words of wisdom out of the best books. And then 119 is the call to build a temple. And we will see that repeated in 109, where the Lord reminds them of teach you earnestly, and here's the temple. And we see, we'll see it again. Go to section 97. When the Lord calls upon the Jackson County Saints as an out to build a temple, notice what he says about why we build temples. This is section 97, verse 13, for a place of thanksgiving for all saints and for a place of instruction for all those who are called to the work of the ministry in all their several callings and offices, that they may be perfected in understanding of their ministry in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in all things pertaining to the kingdom of God on earth, and the keys of which they have been conferred upon you. So numerous times in the scriptures, learning secularly and temple are tied together. So one more time, the Lord simply says, learn all that you can. We're going to see that in section 130 that says every truth that you learn will rise with you in the resurrection, and you'll have so much the advantage in the world to come. So that then transitions in verse 81 to the next picture we're going to pick up. Now we're going to see Jesus, the mission president. So verse 81, he says, it becometh every man who hath been warned to warn his neighbor. So those of you who know me, teach me to others. Those who have been warned need to warn their neighbors. Now, I remind you that the earth is changing and that telestial things cannot dwell on a terrestrial earth so that we've got to get everything changed in order for the earth to change into a terrestrial state. So the Lord says, help me warn the world. Verse 85, that their souls may escape the wrath of God, the desolation of abomination which awaits the wicked, 
both in this world and the world to come. So help me avoid that. Help me save as many people. So now let's talk second coming Jesus. What's going to happen at the second coming? Verse 87, the earth is going to shake. The earth is going to tremble and reel. The sun's going to hide its face. The moon will be bathed in blood. The stars will be exceedingly angry. The earth and everyone around it will be angry at the wickedness on the earth. And it's time to cleanse the earth. Let me jump you forward to Moses chapter 7. This is what the earth is asking. So when we talk about the earth reeling like a drunken man and the sun being angry and the moon being angry and full of rage and blood and the stars not wanting to shine, this is what the earth is saying. Moses seven forty eight. It came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof saying, woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained, I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me that I may rest and righteousness for a season abide upon my face? That's what's making the world angry. That's why the earth is shaking. That's why the sun is mad and the moon is filled with the rage and blood is filling its face. It's because the earth is sick and tired of the filthiness which is found on it and is asking, when will I be saved? When will I be cleansed? Yeah. And although I live in the United States and I've lived a life of relative peace, the history of this world is just drenched in warfare and hatred and I'm reading a book right now called Jerusalem, the Biography, and it's talking about what you just said. It's a historical record of the city of Jerusalem, and I'm kind of in this space right now. I'm in the 12th century reading about Pope Urban and when he sends everybody to to sweep the Saracens off the Temple Mount, and essentially the entire history of Jerusalem is just drenched in blood and warfare. And when there is a little bit of peace, it just seems like wickedness creeps in. And there's all these uh, religious zealots and there's all this expectation and, and everyone's just kind of stirred up in anger. And I think about that a lot with uh, these verses about the earth, because I love this book because it really helps me put these things in perspective and see what's happened to this city over this time period. And there's three major world religions that look to Jerusalem as a as a pinnacle of light. But at the same time, verse 87, that's historically happened. I mean, we have had maybe not the moon bathed in blood, but we've had cities drenched in blood. And so in essence, to make this personal, I really like how you talked about how being organized and being gathered and how the Lord has done that for you in your life. I see this cosmically, he's talking about the earth, but he's really talking about, I mean, on a personal level, if I'm teaching a class, he's talking about how you can have peace and there's no other way. Uh, There really is no other way. So watch as we come into the millennium. So we've got the the earth shaking, the moon, both the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars are all bearing testimony of what's coming. Now watch the earth bear her testimony. So verse 88, after your testimony cometh wrath and indignation upon the people. So first the Lord sent Joseph and his testimony. 
Then he sends these innocent missionaries. He sends prophets and 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds. He sends primary teachers who knock on the door. After our testimony comes the earth's testimony. Now, do you remember back in Ammoniah, the Lord sent Alma. And when they rejected Alma, he sent Amulek, one of their very own. And when they rejected Amulek, he converted Zeezrom right in front of them, one of their very own. And when they rejected Zeezrom, it was the earth, the earthquake and the prison falling down that came next. So the earth always bears her testimony at the end. It will be the exact same in our day. And so after our testimony comes the earth's testimony. Ready? 89. After your testimony cometh the testimony of earthquakes that cause groanings in the midst of her, and men shall fall upon the ground and shall not be able to stand. And also cometh the testimony of the voice of thunderings, and the voice of lightnings, and the voice of tempests, and the voice of waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. And all things shall be in commotion. That's our day. And it's the earth crying out that she be cleansed and she rest. And what is the earth saying? What are the angels saying? What are they all saying? Verse 92, prepare ye, prepare ye, O inhabitants of the earth, for the judgment of our God is come. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And then verse 93, we too, like the third Nephi saints, will see a great sign, a great sign in heaven, and everyone will see it together. Could it be a day and night and a day without darkness like it was at his first coming? Perhaps. But I'm intrigued by the concept of everyone shall see it together. It's not night everywhere on this earth. But there will come a great sign and everyone will know Jesus is coming. And once you've said something that loudly and that powerfully, you can't say anything else. So verse 95, there will be silence. And then comes the cleansing. Now, on the other side of the cleansing, we're going to watch his people join him. So you kind of see the destruction of those who won't be with him. Now we're going to see the triumph and the glory of those who will. So 96, if you're alive when Jesus comes, you will be caught up to meet him. So living saints will descend with Christ. Now, verse 97, if you're dead when he comes— but you were of a celestial disposition, that you wanted Christ in your life. If you were dead, if you've slept, the grave shall be opened, and you will be caught up to meet him in the midst of the pillar of heaven. They are Christ. Now, I think 98 is combining 96 and 97, the living saints and the resurrected saints that come with Christ. They are Christ's, the first fruits they who shall descend with him first. And they who are on the earth and in their graves who are first caught up to meet him. So what a glorious coming. We speak sometimes of the second coming as all these gloomy things that are going to happen. And we often forget the glorious things that are going to happen. The graves of all the righteous will be opened and that we will meet him 
and we will descend with him. And then verse 99, at some point during the millennium, is the resurrection of the terrestrial. He describes them in verse 99. These are those who are Christ's at his coming, who have received their part in that prison which is prepared for them, that they might receive the gospel and be judged according to men in the flesh. He seems to be describing, he doesn't say the word terrestrial, but it sure seems to describe terrestrial people because in verse 100, he seems to be talking about Telestial. Again, another trump shall sound, which is the third trump. Then come the spirits of men who are to be judged and are found under condemnation. These are the rest of the dead, and they live not again until the thousand years are ended, neither again until the end of the earth. So those are the resurrections. So we, throughout the millennium, we will resurrect celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. The telestial will be resurrected at the end. And then in 102, a reference to those who will not live by law. We've already talked about quickened by the glory of the law that you obeyed. And then verse 102, there are those who will not live by law. So another trump shall sound, the fourth trump, there are found among those who are to remain until the great and last day, even the end, who shall remain filthy still. That's our phrase that we saw earlier. Those are the sons of perdition. Then the other trump sound, which talk about God's triumph. Yeah. So I love geeking out on the trumps. There's seven of them. And in the show notes, we put a a really cool graphic that you can kind of see how this is the order of the resurrection and the Lord's going to make everything make sense and put things in order. And I see these verses about the seven trumps to be a further clarification of what Joseph Smith sees in John's apocalypse as he's translating the book of Revelation. I see these verses. If you look in verses 92 through 116, this is careful restating many of the things in the book of Revelation. So according to Robert J. Matthews, the prophet had been involved for many months with making an initial draft of an inspired translation of the New Testament, concluding with the book of Revelation in March of 1832. Now notice the date of this revelation. This revelation is going to come to us in December of 1832. So Joseph Smith has had about six months to ponder these ideas. Matthews continues, in the process of making the translation, many important things were revealed to Joseph about the gospel, and in this case, about future events to take place on the earth. The history of the earth, the ministry of seven angels who play a prominent part in the final judgment scenes, and the opening of the seven seals are significant aspects of the revelation of John. These were reiterated and partially explained in Doctrine and Covenant 77 as a consequence of the translation and were further enlarged upon in these verses from section 88. Thus, we regard this part of section 88 as a further clarification and explanation of the revelation of John. These are astrological items, the winding up events to take place on the earth before it is prepared for the celestial glory. All nations must hear the proclamation of the gospel and be informed of the means of redemption. The earth must die, and wickedness be cleansed from off its face. There will be a resurrection of all mankind and a final judgment. Through faith in Christ, the saints will have gained the victory over sin and death, and it will be crowned with eternal glory. The calamities and convulsive quaking of the earth, the wars and the pestilence spoken of in these verses are the details involved in the larger concept of the earth being prepared 
for its eternal celestial destiny. So I think that really helps us see that those verses are further clarification of what Joseph sees in the book of Revelation. And I think that's really helpful. And the fifth trump to me is talking about what we read in Revelation 14. So if you go to Revelation 14, verse 6, it says this, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And on many of our temples, we have an angel with a trump. And to a lot of individuals, this could represent the the prophet Moroni. This could represent anybody with the gospel or the keys to teach the gospel to the world. And so in this section of this fifth trump scenario in verses 103 and 104, this is an announcement to the world that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. There are seven of these trumps. The sixth trump is in verse 105, and this is an angel proclaiming the end of Babylon's reign, that Babylon will no longer sit on the throne. And I love the description of Babylon. This is a lengthy description. Let me throw this out. Back in 94, he describes what is going to fall. That great church, the mother of abominations, that made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, that persecuteth the saints of God, that sheddeth their blood, she who sitteth upon many waters and upon the islands of the sea, behold, she is the tares of the earth. Back to section 86 we did last time. She is the tares of the earth. She is bound in bundles. Her bands are made strong. No man can loose them. Therefore, she is ready to be burned, and she shall sound, and he shall sound his trump both loud and long, and all nations shall hear it. That's the introduction. And then we get this very short verse this time in 105. She is fallen. John's talking about this. Nephi is talking about this. A good reference is 1 Nephi 22. But in Isaiah, he's talking about this too. And there's, and I call this the great exchange. You have the 47th chapter, and then you have the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. And in the 47th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah says to Babylon, come and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone, grind the meal. Uncover thy locks, make bare thy leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not deal thee as a man. And then in verse 5 of Isaiah 47, it says, Sit thou silent, and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. And then it's to me, it's just fascinating in the seventh and eighth verse where she proclaims, I shall be a lady forever. And then in verse eight, she says, I shall not sit as a widow. And then in verse nine, the Lord says, oh, yes, you will. And it will happen in a moment and it will happen in one day. And so from Isaiah's perspective, Babylon will go down quickly. Now, historically, that did happen, but it's these are types that we see in the scriptures, and so they're repeated often. And so it wasn't just the Babylon that was in the time of Nephi that would fall, but it's the Babylon that was in the time of John, the revelator, when he speaks of this, that would fall, and also Babylon 
in our day. And so in the 52nd chapter, this is where Zion takes the throne. In the 52nd chapter, it says, verse 1, and by the way, this is the end of the Book of Mormon. So when you read Isaiah 52, go to Moroni 10 and read right around verse 31 where the same stuff's being said. Awake and put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come in unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and ye shall be redeemed, but without money. And so in this context, it's a transfer of power. And Zion's going to take the throne, and Babylon's going to be cast out. In verse 6 of Isaiah 52, where Zion takes the throne, the Lord says in verse 6, My people will know my name. And then in verse 8, the people in Zion will see eye to eye. And so this power transfer will happen. And that's kind of that sixth angel's job is to make sure or to oversee this, this power transfer happening. Now, in the seventh trump, this is verses 106 and 107, but it's also verses 112 to 116. And this is Michael and his armies fighting against the adversary. This is the final binding, verse 110, of the, the accuser or Satan that's loose for a little, little season. There's an interesting passage in the middle of the seventh trump in verse 110. Um, I nerd out a little bit in the show notes about what that means. We really don't know, but if you look in the middle of verse 110, it says that in the midst of this binding of Satan, it says that there shall be time no longer. And that comes to us right out of the book of Revelation, chapter 10, verse 6. And the reason why it can be a little bit complicated is because of the construction of the Greek. One of the ways to look at this is that there will be time no longer, but another way to read it is that the time is up or there is no more delay, meaning that in this context, the saints finally don't have to deal with waiting for Satan to be bound. I like both readings of it, of Revelation 10, and both of them can be translated that way. And so I'm not going to get into, is there time or is there, you know, is there not time in the next life? But I like this idea in section 88, verse 110, that the adversary will be bound and the weight will be over. Eventually the weight will be over. And I think that's part of being a Christian is living in the midst of all these injustices. And sometimes we think, will it ever be settled? And I think that's one of the messages is that it's going to be okay. And I think we get a taste of it in our families, in in any place where we have the things happening in verse 119, where we're organized and we're prepared and we're established. On a small scale, it's like family dinner. On a bigger scale, it's when we all get together as a ward family and we remember Jesus and we take the sacrament. One of my favorite phrases that pops up several times in the Book of Mormon is that someday we will go no more out. I love that phrase, to go no more out. So we get up and we have to go fight the dragon every day because he's coming after my children. So I go out and I fight the dragon and I look forward to the day where I will go no more out. And that day's coming. 
but it's not today, so we fight the dragon. But know that it's coming, that it shall end. I love verse 106, when the trump sounds, it shall be said, it is finished. It is finished. The fight is over. It is finished. And Jesus won. And if you're on his team, you're going to be standing with him. So yes, it's going to come to an end. And I think that gives us hope for our day when it's not over and we do have to go out and fight the dragon. I think we get little pieces of it here and there when the Spirit's with us or when you really have that great connection with someone that you love, you feel that, you know what, it's going to be okay. But you're right, Bryce, we just live in a world where it's just really messy. Yeah. The next window, verses 111 through 116, is at the end of the millennium. So we've kind of talked coming up into the millennium, the, the, the warning voice, the destruction that comes before the millennium. We've talked about the different stages throughout the millennium where the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial will be resurrected, where all things will be revealed. Now, verse 11, we jump to the end of the millennium where Satan will be loosed. It's kind of like holding down a rabid dog. You can hold him down for a while, but you know as soon as you let go, he's going to snap at you. And so we've bound Satan for a thousand years, and he's going to come out, and he's going to snap. And that's the final battle, the battle of Gog and Magog. And it's going to happen at the end of the millennium, and Satan will finally once be kicked out, and Michael will be victorious and will overcome. And then we move on into the celestial world. All that we've been working for, this earth becomes a celestial world, and now we are crowned in that celestial world. So that brings us to the end of the millennium, and I love verse 117 is the transition, therefore. So here's all this talk about what's coming and the victory of Christ in the millennium, therefore. So here are all the therefores. And this is the culmination because Jesus is all these things. And we've looked at all the pictures. Look, everything the Savior's done, everything that he's going to do. Look at what's ahead still, resurrection, second coming, millennium. Therefore, notice the call to all these things. Verse 118, we've covered, teach ye diligently. 119, organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, establish a house, a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. And then in order to get there, verse 121, in order to go into the temple, we have to give up everything that is telestial, give up our lustful desires, all our pride and light-mindedness, all our wicked doings. So let go. Meet me inside the temple. Verse 22, appoint unto yourselves a teacher. Let all not speak at once, but let one speak at a time, and let all listen unto his sayings. And when all have spoken, that all may be edified of all, that every man may have an equal privilege." So all of these are the therefore what's. Verse 123, love one another, cease to be covetous, learn to impart. Verse 124, cease to be idle, cease to be unclean, cease to find fault one with another, cease to sleep longer than is needful. Verse 125, above all things, clothe yourself in the bonds of charity as with a mantle, which is the bond of perfect peace. So all of this is the great and last promise. Organize yourselves, 
prepare every needful thing, establish a house. All of that is what we need to do to go into the temple in which we will be organized, we will be prepared, and we will be established. So then the last picture we see is between now and the temple. Let me give you a step in between. And he calls for the school of the prophets. It's like, here's a mini temple so that you can learn and prepare yourselves to go into the big temple. And so he calls for verse 127, again, the order of the house prepared for the presidency of the school of the prophets. Now, one thing he emphasizes is this is how you're supposed to greet each other when you come into the school of the prophets. Ready? I love this. One of my favorite things in the early days of the church in verse 133, here was the prayer you uttered to each other as you came into the school of the prophets. Now, think about symbolically what would happen if we all came into gospel doctrine and said this. If we all came into an elders quorum meeting or a release society meeting or even a sacrament meeting and we all said this, they were to say, art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in token of our remembrance of the everlasting covenant in which covenant I receive you to fellowship in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable to be your friend and brother through the grace of God in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God blamelessly in thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. That's how they greeted each other. What would happen if in our church meetings, the spirit of that greeting still permeated? That's how saints are supposed to live. And that's the preparation for the temple. If you want to become a celestial person, start to obey the celestial law. Let the celestial law govern your heart. Let your eye be single to the glory of the celestial kingdom. Live a celestial law so that the celestial glory will perfect you, sanctify you, protect you, and keep you safe. What a glorious section this is. And I remind you, Joseph Smith has just turned 27 years old. Could you have produced something like this text when you were 27? It's just marvelous. I love the Savior that we get to know in section 88 and the plea he makes at the end, come into the temple and meet me there. Be celestial. Yeah. Thanks, Bryce. This section is going to lead right into section 89 because in this little room above the store, the brethren are meeting and they're doing some things that are going to lead to Emma asking questions that's going to lead to section 89. So... Thank you for spending your time with us today as we've covered, uh, in brief, section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, what Joseph calls the olive leaf plucked from the tree of paradise. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.